This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. At the turn of the 21st century, there was a great deal of discussion about who were the most important figures in the preceding millennium. In 2017, we'll celebrate the life and significance of one of those epochal figures, Martin Luther. In preparation for that celebration and looking forward to our 2017 faculty conference, Is the Reformation Over?, our theme for Season 8 of Office Hours is Reformation 500. We're thinking about what the Reformation was, why it happened, and what it means for us. Joining us to help us think about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is Dr. W. Robert Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California. Bob is an expert in Reformation history. He recently produced a six-part DVD series of lectures on church history for Ligonier Ministries. He's author of John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor, and Reformation Sketches. These and other faculty titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is a two-part episode with Dr. Godfrey. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here with you again. Martin Luther is a figure of such enormous importance, it's really hard to overstate his significance. And yet I get the sense that we don't always appreciate how important he really was. I think that's true. I think he is important on many different levels in many different ways. And um, I think particularly Americans probably do not appreciate him as they should. I was intrigued a few years ago when I was talking to Professor Selderheis from the Netherlands, who was trying to organize some celebrations of the 500th anniversary next year of Luther's nailing the 95 Theses on the church door. And um, he seemed really bewildered that Americans seemed so much less interested in Luther than Europeans did. Whether you're Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish, in Europe, you recognize uh, Luther is an epic changer. Uh, All of European history shifts in a dramatic way because of Luther. But Americans, I think, partly because we came to existence in the post-Luther world, don't recognize how great our debt to Luther is in terms of the world that we've inherited. Do you think it's also the case that because so many American evangelicals have their roots in 19th century revivalism or 18th century revivals, and because in North America, the Lutheran denominations, though they may be large, there may be as many as 8 million Lutherans in North America, nevertheless, they're relatively quiet as opposed to, let's say, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is nominally 16 million people. So there's 60 million American evangelicals, according to Pew, and 60 million American Roman Catholics. But among those evangelicals, if we count the Lutherans, they're relatively quiet. Didn't Peter Berger write a book, The Noise of Solemn Assemblies? We could do a whole office hours on the relative amount of noise made by different (laughs) denominations. But I think you're right. I don't think Lutheranism in America— Uh, Whatever its size, whatever the uh, important work it's done, for example, in education in America, it's not perceived as a major cultural player in America. It's not seen really as part of the American religious mainstream. And they don't really identify with it either. No. And Lutheranism has remained not only somewhat quiet, but it has remained geographically and ethnically concentrated in certain areas. So it's mainly Scandinavians and Germans in America to this day who are Lutheran. For most American evangelicals, Luther is an interesting figure, but a sort of foreign figure. 
largely unknown directly. And my sense in talking to people and listening and reading is that they think, well, Luther was important and he really got something important started, but we've advanced beyond him. So we don't really need to know him, engage with him, learn from him even. Yeah, I think that's exactly the attitude. If evangelicals show any interest in Luther, it's probably Luther simply as the rebel against the Catholic Church and the one who threw off the yoke of Rome and began the rest of us thinking differently. And I think most evangelicals don't think of looking to Luther for any sort of religious or theological help, which I think is a mistake. There is also kind of an American Luther that is, as you say, rebel against Rome, but also rebel against the established order. So Americans have kind of appropriated that, a sort of precursor to the American Revolution. But that's not really an embrace of Luther for who he was in his time and place. Right. Yeah. Luther, the rebel, only takes you so far because really in his heart of hearts, he was not a rebel. Well, that's great. I think that's a good turning point here. So where was he born? How was he raised? Draw us into the Luther biography. Well, Luther was uh, born and raised in what we think of as the eastern part of Germany today, the broader Saxon region. Germany in his day had little sense of being Germany. It uh, had a great territorial sense. People thought of themselves like Luther would have as a Saxon. It's sort of a collection of duchies and districts who spoke similar languages or a common language, but the notion of Germany doesn't really exist until the 19th century. Right. The unity they felt was being part of the Holy Roman Empire under a single emperor. But, you know, to try to understand it, it would be as if today an American really thought of himself in the first place as a Californian and only way down the line as an American. We tend not to think that. Way. Not after the Civil War, right? No. Not after the Civil War, right. So Luther was born and raised in uh, a part of Germany that uh, in some ways was a little bit of a cultural backwater. He was uh, raised in a family that had begun to make some money. They were not poor, poor people. His father owned a business, a smelting business, and was eventually able to afford to educate his son, which really meant they were middle class, maybe slightly anachronistic way of talking. So it was a family of some means and some ambition. Education was seen as a way up in the 16th century. He's really a small town boy. He's a small town boy. Absolutely. He didn't travel far. No, he does travel as life goes on for school, but uh, even those travels are, by our standards today, pretty short distances. But when you think that your traveling in those days was largely on foot, any distance became fairly significant. Uh, many, many people would never have traveled more than 10 miles from home, maybe in their whole life. It's true. I mean, a one-day walk might take you 20 miles, and there aren't many Americans who've walked 20 miles in one day. Right. So then if you have an animal, you can go a little farther, but still, your world is pretty circumscribed. Well, I'm intrigued when I go to Northern California to old towns where my family lived at one time. Uh, many of them are eight miles apart, and what that represents, I think, is the distance you could walk and walk back in one day. And that's a full day. And that's a full day, <laughs> a long day walking 16 miles. And the yeah. chances are your hands are full. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. All right. And there are no machines. And Luther did travel to Rome in 1510. Right. So that was his, by far, his biggest journey. Absolutely. And that's a long trip. It basically took a year out of his life yep. to go to Rome and back. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So what kind of education did he have? Well, his father wanted him to become a lawyer. That's always an intriguing reality that uh, from that day to this, becoming a lawyer seems to fathers to be a good thing for sons to do to advance family fortunes. So he was sent to school to learn to 
read and write and head in that direction. But it's not the direction Luther ultimately wanted to pursue, and so he ended up pursuing a more theological education. In fact, his dad was not particularly pleased when he did become a monk. No, not at all. His father thought it was a waste for his son to become a monk. And I don't mean to say that as if his father was some rebel against the Roman Catholic system. He certainly, I imagine, admired monks. He just didn't want his son to be one. He thought his son could do something better for the family by doing something else. And monks weren't necessarily on the most well-regarded list. And every year, somebody publishes a list of the professions. You know, doctors and lawyers are typically towards the top. At any rate, there's a list of admired professions. And I'm reasonably certain in the 16th century that monks may not have been very high on that list in as much as they were mendicants. They didn't contribute. One analogy I've thought of is in Israel, the Orthodox are not thought of very highly in modern Israel because they don't do anything. They don't serve in the military. They tell people what to do, how to live, but they don't actually contribute to the day-to-day life of most Israelis. That's certainly true. I think what you have to always keep in mind is there are many different kinds of monks in Luther's day. So yeah, there are the poor begging monks who have often very little education and might well be perceived by many people as a sort of drain on society. They don't always appear to be living remarkably holy lives. Uh, Drunkenness, immorality was a problem with some monks. And among the priests as well. And among the priests as well. created a kind of cynicism, a popular cynicism when you, you you hear rumors about your priest, right? Or maybe your local church is vacant. You know, there are all kinds of things that would create maybe a certain level of disenchantment. Right. But then on the other hand, there were very well-educated monks and uh, disciplined orders. So it's a little like American denominations. You can find almost anything you want from the really crazy to the fairly respectable. That's a really important point, that the nature of the church at the turn of the 16th century is not nearly as sort of uniform as we're often led to think, that there was a lot of diversity in the Western church, the Roman church, leading up to the Reformation. Yeah, you'll find as we go along that all my points are really important. (laughs) (laughs) But no, that's, that's really true, that there was a lot of diversity theologically, but also in terms of attitudes towards holiness and discipline and almost every aspect of church life. As a young man, Luther attends Mass with his family. What did Luther know about God, Christ, salvation? In what sort of religious world did he live? Well, he lived in a religious world, as you just pointed out, where attendance at Mass was kind of at the center of religious experience. And going back into the 16th century, it's a little hard to reconstruct with certainty what that average, if there is an average, churchgoer understood about what was happening. We don't have a lot of records from average illiterate churchgoers. Very, very few voices to give us a clear sense of that. There would have been a clear sense that the church was a holy place and that the priest did something important as a mediator between you and God, that the altar was the center and focus of attention in the church, and that what the priest did at the altar was of importance. And it's really all about seeing, isn't it? It is. I mean, there's hearing and there's smelling, right? There is incense and there are things being said, but from the center of it is what the parishioner saw which was a drama being reenacted, often in a cruciform building, right, a cross-shaped building, at the center of which is this altar. Right. And these buildings were not built for speaking, so that some of the prayers were intentionally said softly at the altar, 
But even the prayers that were theoretically meant to be heard by the congregation probably couldn't be heard with any clarity. And of course, most of the Mass was done in Latin so that most of the people there couldn't speak Latin even if they could hear it. So, you know, that's the famous story about people thinking magic words are hocus pocus because that's what they heard when the words hocus corpus meum were spoken by the priest. They knew those were words of power. It did look like magic. It did look like magic, but it's also important to realize that this work of the priest was seen as the critical work, and therefore, whether he was personally a holy man didn't really matter to this work. The work still got done, whether he was personally holy and admirable or not. So there's this almost, you could say, spiritual schizophrenia going on. Utilitarianism. Yeah. This is the guy appointed by the church and appointed ultimately by the Holy Father in Rome. And so what I think of him personally is sort of indifferent because he's the one authorized to conduct this transaction. And he says the words. Now, you said it in Latin, and those words mean? This is my body. And at the moment of consecration, the people were taught or learned, inferred by osmosis, however they got it, that the bread and the wine were being transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. Right. You know, to use a modern analogy, you could say if the power goes out in your house, you call the electrician. It doesn't matter whether he's a holy electrician or not. He can get the power back on. And that's sort of the way the priest was viewed. He was the power man. That's very good, Bob. <laughs> How did Luther look then at God? Does he see God as his friend? Does he see Jesus as his helper? How does he see these things as a young man? I think the average medieval Christian, to the extent he thought about God, would have seen God as scary, that God is demanding, that God knows what you're doing, and that it's not easy to get right with God. And the message of the church is that the church has all sorts of avenues to help you get closer to God, help you get right with God. But even Jesus is scary to a significant extent. When he's pictured, he's often pictured as a judge. Right. right? He's not pictured necessarily as your friend. Right. And even the Jesus on the cross in his suffering, I'm not sure as they looked at that, they had any confidence that that suffering was really immediately for them. It's just another thing that would make Jesus more demanding of them. Having done all this for you on the cross, how are you measuring up? Yeah. In a sense, using Protestant categories, the cross becomes more law rather than gospel, because you rotten, wretched person, you put him there, right? which, of course, all Christians believe that. But as you say, you therefore need to do your part. right? And so that's the system in which Luther is growing up, is the church is offering you grace. In the past, you've used, and I've used this many times, so I'll give you credit. I've got this from you. The church is like a filling station, and you sort of burn up your merit and your righteousness and your grace, and you go back to Mass to get refilled. You receive communion and you start over again. And that's the nature of the Christian life. And it's fundamentally one of uncertainty. Right. In fact, uncertainty is a virtue. Certainty is presumption and arrogance. And so the church taught, the Council of Trent will later teach officially that only those with special revelation can have certainty and anyone else with certainty is being presumptuous and putting their soul at risk because being doubtful and afraid is a good thing. Because it leads to godliness. As it far as leads you to pursue holiness uh, more vigorously. Right. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. 
judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Luther scholars talk about his crises, his Anfechtungen. So what were Luther's crises and how important are these crises for understanding him? Because modern Luther scholarship has, since the early 20th century, made a great deal of Luther's crises. Well, the Anfechtungen really are the temptations, the struggles of Luther's life. And they didn't necessarily end when he became a Protestant. He continued to be troubled. And this has led moderns to ask, was he psychologically disordered in some way. There's a really important book on that, right? Young Man Luther, right. evaluating Luther from a Freudian point of view. Right. You know, it turns out it's fairly hard to put a historical figure on the couch. And, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not easy to do it because in you can't, real life. You yeah. can't ask him all the questions you need to ask, even assuming that the psychoanalysis is a valid procedure. What we do know is that Luther went through periods of severe melancholy, and in those, he needed to flee again to the promises of God. And so, yeah, he has these ups and downs in life. They appear not to have been what we tend to think of as clinical depressions, because scholars have seen that throughout his life, he remained very productive as a writer, and severe clinical depression usually leaves people unable to act or to work. But the great crisis of Luther's life, whether we think of it as an Anfechtung or not, is when he's already a professor teaching theology in the Bible, comes to wrestle with what really is God saying about his own righteousness and about the relationship of that righteousness to Jesus Christ. So this goes back to his biography. He goes off to university and he studies in the new curriculum, right? Not the, necessarily the traditional curriculum. And he learns an approach to theology that would be pretty radically different from what had been taught, let's say, in the 13th century. I'm not sure that's true. I think his education at the university is still primarily scholastic. It's not the realism of Thomas. Yes, that's what I'm getting okay. at. Okay. It's now the new scholastic theology of nominalism. I thought maybe you were uh, going to say that his university career was in a kind of Renaissance education. No, uh, it's not that. It's still a scholastic theological education. He's a theologian. He's not a humanist. Right, exactly. Uh, he will learn Greek and Hebrew later. He'll be influenced by that later in his life. But I think it is, again, important to say that he is being influenced and accepting initially the dominant scholasticism of the church of that time. So while some later Roman Catholics will lament nominalism as a development and want to go back to Thomas. It's not that Luther is, again, in any sense, being a rebel by embracing the nominalism of his time. That's the dominant theological approach in his day. And so he graduates from university. He completes his undergraduate education. 
is back for a party and then off to what we would think of as grad school. And on the way, he has a kind of shattering experience. Walk us through that story. He had studied at Airfort for his bachelor's degree. He had started a master's degree, probably heading in the direction of law at that time. And he'd gone home to see his father and to tell him he really wanted to study theology and become a monk. His father had forbidden him to do that. And on his way back to Airfort, he's caught in a thunderstorm. And this is one of those great, almost cinematically dramatic moments in life where fearing that he's going to die being hit by lightning, he falls on the ground and says, St. Anne, I will become a monk. Now, this is technically known as a foxhole prayer. Uh, (laughs) uh, All all the listeners know what a foxhole prayer is. A foxhole prayer is, if you get me out of this current difficulty, I'll do something disagreeable for you in the future. But Luther's cheating because he's taking a vow to do what he really wants to do, and he doubly cheats because he takes the vow in the name of St. Anne, who's the patron saint of his father, So he's kind of bound his father by this oath, because in those days, if you took an oath, you couldn't release yourself from an oath. And uh, then he goes and joins the Augustinian monastery in the city of Erfurt before he tells his father that he's done this. So he's really making life very difficult for his father. And in joining the Augustinian monastery, he has deliberately chosen to join a serious-minded, disciplined, and intellectual order. Thank you. That's exactly where I wanted to go next. When he said, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk, he had in mind, or afterwards he headed for, a really rigorous monastic order. There were different kinds of monastic orders. Sometimes I have likened them to campus ministries, right? You have Campus Crusade, which is sort of about evangelism. You have Navigators, which is sort of about the Bible memory and spiritual disciplines, sort of a Protestant Jesuits in that respect. And so you have a variety of different monastic movements. And the order, sort of the charter, the rule under which these Augustinian monks lived was a rigorous order, Right. It required them to pray at dawn or before dawn, at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3, again in the afternoon, uh, late afternoon, and then I'm not sure about the evening, but then there was a night vigil, maybe 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And that's just some of the obligations that they had as monks. Yeah, and adding to the spiritual disciplines were intellectual disciplines of study to which he soon gave himself. So all of that was very important. So... He takes his new monastic life very seriously. He enters an observant Augustinian monastery, and he really throws himself into it. Right. And they had a proverb in those days, doubt makes the monk. It's doubting your salvation, doubting your relationship to God, doubting that you can do enough, which leads you to this at least theoretically self-denying life so that you're giving up family, you're giving up possessions, you're giving up freedom in the world to give yourself 100% to God. That's the theory. Augustinian rule required shared possessions, what few possessions there were, including clothing. So there's almost nothing of yours. In fact, it's quasi-Marxist. It's practically from whom? From each according to his ability. Yeah, from each according to his ability to each according to his need as determined by the abbot in charge of the monastery. Now, of course, in some of these monastic orders, they were cheating because although each individual monk owned nothing, the order as a whole owned a lot, and sometimes that meant they could eat very well. But that was not the kind of order that Luther was really identifying with. He really did want a disciplined, ascetic life. It can be confusing when we tell people that he was an Augustinian monk. People might assume that, therefore, these monks believed what Augustine believed, what we understand Augustine to have believed. But that's not necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case. You know, the Augustinian monks, because of their name, 
were a little more inclined to read Augustine with sympathy, but it doesn't necessarily mean they were strict Augustinians theologically. He had a father confessor in the monastery, Johann von Staupitz, who really was an Augustinian. Right. And who preached Augustinian sermons in the monastery that they heard. Right. And certainly had a big impact on Luther's rather gradual formation as a theologian. So in university and as a grad student, he had learned a view of salvation and sin that was only shades different from what Pelagius had taught. There were some differences, but there were a lot of similarities. So he would have said that, yes, we are sinful, but we're not that sinful. And yes, grace is important, but really we're endowed with all that we need by virtue of creation, and we just need to capitalize on that. That was one of his uh, influences was a theologian who had said, to those who do what lies within them, God denies not grace or favor. Right. I think Luther and most in his time would have said grace is necessary, but grace is given to everybody in baptism. So they're not radical Pelagians. They're more what we call semi-Pelagians. But as you well know, semi-Pelagianism is a broad spectrum. On the one hand, you have those who think they need very little grace to do what's necessary. On the other hand, you have those who think almost everything should be attributed to grace, but not quite everything. And Luther probably is hearing voices from a variety of places on that spectrum. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And so when he is in chapel hearing from von Staupitz, he's hearing from a representative of what I've sometimes called the Young, Restless, and Augustinian movement in the late 15th and early 16th century. You have a recovery among a number of scholars of what we sometimes call the doctrines of grace. And so he's hearing this, and then Staupitz sends him off to become essentially a scholar of Scripture, and he gets a teaching position in the University of Wittenberg. Right. Right. As a young man, and uh, this is a relatively new university and not probably seen as a plum academic appointment. It's a little bit in the outback, even though Wittenberg is the capital of Electoral Saxony. But yeah, he plunges in there with great seriousness, studying, receiving his doctoral degree while he's there, and mainly then beginning to lecture on the Bible. He'd also studied Aristotle. He had studied at least some of the theology of the church. There's some debate about how much of medieval theology he'd read. We know he'd read some of it. But as he begins to lecture through the Psalms, and then later through Romans and uh, Galatians and Hebrews, and then the Psalms again, his theology really begins to take a remarkable turn. It does. And what he begins to discover as he digs into the scriptures to teach them is that they don't seem to be speaking the same language. They don't seem to be describing the same religion as what he has been experiencing, both in his worship in the local church and in the theology that he studied from the scholastics. How did he move? Can you sketch that for us? I've talked about this in other episodes, so the listener has an opportunity to go back and listen to those if he hasn't heard them. But walk us briefly through Luther's transition as he lectures through Scripture. So I think it's important for the listener to understand that he's really working with Scripture so that this really is, in some ways, a Bible-driven change. Well, and not only is he working with Scripture, but in 1516, after he's uh, been at Wittenberg about five years, Erasmus publishes his new Latin translation and critical Greek edition of the New Testament. And I think it's a little hard for us to fully understand how revolutionary that was. Maybe for some of us of a certain age, it was like moving from the King James Version to the NIV. All of a sudden, you're able to read the Bible 
from a different kind of angle. Suddenly things become fresh in a way that they hadn't been really clear before. And so Luther, I think, is significantly impacted by this new opportunity to read the Bible in a fresh sort of way. And that begins to increase the tension within him. He's been moving in a more Augustinian direction. One way of putting the crisis Luther ultimately comes to is to say he's coming to understand and embrace that we're saved by grace alone, but he's not seeing faith alone, which I would argue is the sort of stabilizing factor to a doctrine of grace. And so, what he himself will call the evangelical breakthrough, what he himself will refer to as his world being turned upside down and paradise opened, is when finally he comes to understand faith in relation to grace. He's been moving slowly to a fuller and fuller understanding of grace, but it's that breakthrough that he comes to when he sees it's grace received by faith alone that is really the key to uh, understanding the scriptures. It's not a shattering single episode. Some modern Luther scholarships actually focused on Luther's toilet habits. Again, this gets right. back to Freud. And, yes, and, right. And there's even been some archaeology on, on some of those things. Right. But really, it's a matter of reading the scriptures, lecturing through the Psalms, reading Augustine on the Psalms, and as you say, recapturing an Augustinian view of sin and grace. And then as he gets to Romans, he begins to see this doctrine that we take for granted, and that is that for Paul, the basis on which we stand before God is not what transpires within us by grace and cooperation with grace, but what Christ has accomplished for us and credited to us. Right. And the scholars are debating when that final piece slipped into place. I'm one personally who thinks it's later rather than earlier. So Faith is the stabilizing thing, as right, you say. Right. And I think he doesn't really come to clarity about that until early 1518. So after the 95 Theses are posted. That's important. So that when he did the 95 Theses, he said later, looking back at it, that he was still a right frantic papist. He was. And if you read the 95 Theses, the only thing he really says critical about a pope is he doesn't really think indulgences ought to be applied to the dead as well as to the living. He's not sure the pope has the right to do that. But in the 95 Theses, he says, anybody who denies the apostolic character of indulgences, let him be anathema. The irony of celebrating you know, the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses is that they aren't really a Protestant document. They aren't. What they are is a public beginning of a discussion that will lead to Protestantism. So, as Luther's first sort of public act, it is a significant moment, but it's not really his first Protestant act. That's, a, I think, a significant distinction. Now, he's lecturing through Romans, and he's starting to get imputation, but he hasn't quite got sola fide. And so then he's in Galatians, and he's in Hebrews, and then he's in the Psalms again. And later, looking back, writing in a preface to his collected works, not long before he died, right. he saw 1519 as the turning point. You mentioned 1518. So it's a process. It is. But it crystallizes through the course of those lectures. What do you think it was about lecturing through Hebrews, Galatians, and then Psalms again that helped him see what we think of as sola fide? And what is sola fide? Sola fide is the Protestant recognition that it is not what I do or what I become that makes me right with God, but it's my looking away from self to Christ and resting, trusting Christ alone and his work outside of me to make me right with God. 
And so, sola fide, faith alone, is my resting in Christ alone, looking outside myself for all my hope of the restoration of my relationship with God. And that's what's critical. I think, in some ways, Romans 4.16 is crucial there. Uh, It is by faith that it might be by grace. That kind of encapsulates it. And now he says, I understand Romans 1. You know, I had badgered Paul, he says, about Romans 1. What do you mean the just shall live by faith? Because prior to his development over these seven or eight years, whenever he saw, and I think it's important for the listener to get this, that whenever he saw the just shall live by faith, what he saw is that the righteous man shall live by his faithfulness. Right. And he wasn't doing it. Right. In fact, he didn't think anybody was doing it, really. And that's why he said at a certain point he hated God. He hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, because all it communicated to him was the standard he could never meet. And he said, if you have a standard you could never meet, how can you do anything else except hate it? It's bad enough, you know, God gave us the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus reinforces them. So the whole faith, really, to that point, is bad news. Right. And leaves him sort of hopeless and almost despairing. But now, through this course of study, he sees, well, grace isn't a medicine with which I'm being infused. Now he sees that grace is God's favor, and it's unconditioned on anything I do. And the righteousness by which I stand before God is no longer that which is the product of God's medicine and my cooperation with that. It's now credited to me. Now he's got faith as resting, receiving, and trusting in what Christ has done for him. Right. And that's why he will talk about the importance of alien faith or alien righteousness. It's faith in another. It's not extraterrestrial. It's faith in another. And uh, that's what's crucial for Luther. It's realizing all I could never do for myself has been done for me in Christ and by Christ. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.